All right, how you guys doing? So this guy you guys see sitting right here, this gentleman is the one I just hired to come on and help with documentaries and filming on the new channel, Disposed TV. Now, this piece you guys are about to see, he was over there for two and a half months inside of Ukraine. He's going to be going back along with myself and my other camera guy in mid-July time frame, some, some, somewhere around there. But this is a piece of documentary we're currently working on that is going to be uploaded on Disposed TV. The physical presence of Russians ended here uh, six weeks ago. Stopped shelling here about a week and a half ago. Every single apartment without exception has been hit. When the war broke out, everyone that he knows of except for a few fled to either Europe or to far western Ukraine. The first day of the war, they were fed 300 people. Yesterday, they fed 12. And so now it's just, you know, voluntary if you want to come right. and eat, eat. But it went from 300 all the way down to 12. You know, they brought in uh, places for the people to sit down to eat. They brought in beds for the, for the people to come in and stay. How long have they been down here for? A cock dog of yes. From the from the 24th of February, the first day of the war. As it began, they began to shell. So this is already the third month now that we're here. Right. We actually live here. Now, I just wanted to show him, see his face, so you guys can see him. That was just a taste of what will be coming on that channel. I know that both of my guys will actually be heading into Ukraine, like I said, in the middle of July. Uh, to work on some projects here in the States as well. This weekend, they're going to be going to a wild fest. Like, I'm not even going to tell you guys what it is. It's wild. Uh, if you guys would like to follow the channel, it will be linked at the very top of the description and down inside the comments area. You guys can go there, click it, subscribe, please. And if you guys are listening on the podcast platforms, all you have to do is type in Disposed TV. That is D-I-S-P-O-S-E-D TV in YouTube. And you guys might have to change the search to like search for channels because we haven't posted a video yet, but I think we've got roughly about eight and a half thousand followers on there. So thank you so much for those people. Uh, hopefully this first one will be up this weekend. So please go subscribe to it if you guys haven't already. So don't miss it when it drops. Like I said, it'll be linked at the very top of the description for everybody is watching here on YouTube. So please go and subscribe to it. Okay, so out the gate, we're going to touch on a bit of the Russian economy that is going on, and they, they just re released some of these numbers. Uh, these are going to be data points from May of 2022 and May of 2021. Now, these numbers are going to be production numbers of each of the items, okay? So it's pretty big. Cars are down 96.7%. Trucks are down 39.3%. Passenger train wagons down 59.8%. Fiberglass cables down 80%. Uh, I, I think that's got to be like maybe fiber optics underneath the ground for internet. Fridges, yes, fridges are down 58.1%. Washing machines down 59.2%. That would explain why we've seen so many Russians trying to steal Ukrainian washing machines. Elevators down 34%. Excavators down 60%. There's no Bob DeVilder going on inside of you, inside of Russia. Now, I, I know this seems to be quite weird, like pieces to actually look at, but if you guys take a step back, you'll realize that these items play a fairly large role in the economy's ability to actually move forward, and it also will affect the daily lives of the average Russian civilian. I mean, they're not going to be able to go buy a fridge, go buy a washing machine, you know what I mean? Like retail business, by the way, their confidence has also plunged to an all-time low within Russia itself. Pensions are down 8.2% year over year, and salaries are down 7.2% year over year. Another 
interesting statistics is the fact that Russian population migration balance is now negative for the first time ever. So you're talking about a negative 400,000 population growth shift in one quarter alone. So this is another thing we need uh, to actually bring up because when you guys are talking about the ability to sustain a long-term war, you're, you know what I mean? You're going to need men to replace you know, for the ones that have been casualties. This is going to become the war of attrition is going to start setting in and it's going to be fairly difficult for them to do that. So I've also said this multiple times on this channel that the morale of the Russian units has been a problem. And I believe it's going to be actually much worse going into winter. I know a lot of you guys out there would say, oh my God, they live in the cold. They're used to it. They're not used to being in the cold under such stress, being home, like away from home, excuse me, and having to push through very hostile areas. Now, the Russians have been faced with so many disciplinary problems that they've literally had to resort to using a rubber stamp for soldiers to pay books with notations of cowardice and treachery. The image you guys are currently seeing has been displayed currently. I found it actually scrolling through Twitter from a name. Uh, God, I can't find my words. From a guy named Chuck Farr's account. Okay, this guy used to be an old Navy SEAL. Now, one of the stamps actually says, Committed evasion of the duties of military service by refusing to perform service and combat tasks as part of the main reinforced tactical group during the special military operation. Yes, that was a mouthful. Then it goes on to saying that acting commander of the military unit like grants this and he signs it or whatever. Now, the other stamp actually says prone to treachery, lies and deception, refuse to participate in the special military military operation on the territory of LPR, DPR and Ukraine. Now, the Russian government is literally having to make these stamps for soldiers passbooks because it's happening so much and they're tired of writing it in. Like, imagine having to make a stamp to put in a soldier's thing that says treachery, doesn't listen to orders, sucks at his job, doesn't want to be here. That's what they're having to do over and over and over again. Now, the counterintelligence officers within Ukraine's security services, the SBU, uh, have actually detained a Russian intel asset who is providing target data for Russian missile strikes within the country. This individual was also providing Russian government with b- uh, battle damage assessments. Uh, basically, BDA, if you guys don't know what it is, is nothing more than an individual showing up or a group showing up on target after it has been hit so they can see what kind of damage was actually caused and if the enemy, enemy had uh, sustained any type of casualties in doing so. Now, probably some of the biggest news of the day is the fake, uh, <laughs> is the fact American weapons absolutely pounded Snake Island and forced the Russians to retreat. Yes, now the Americans didn't do it themselves, but they were given these weapons. Now, overnight, the Ukrainian military used HIMARS to strike Snake Island. I say HIMARS because it's well within the range of them. Uh, the range is roughly 50 miles, and I think Snake Island was roughly about 30-ish, 35-ish miles from one of the areas I looked at. And the M777 howitzers are, are also capable of hitting this with the right ammunition, but I don't believe they have it. Either way, it doesn't matter. The Russian war ministry has actually confirmed the evacuation from Snake Island has happened. It is also somewhat ironic because he is using the same wording that they used to repeat inside of Kiev, Chernihiv, and the Sumy regions. Now, the Russian war ministry claims that it is a sign of goodwill and didn't want to admit the truth that the Russian soldiers were actually stranded on the island and were being pounded by Western artillery pieces. Just want to throw that one out there. Now, I have no idea how this Russian professor was able to actually come to the conclusion that Russia is all about peace and cooperation while the West is all about war. The situation is very interesting. We look at the images from NATO's summit. Then we look at the images from the Caspian summit. Those images are drastically different. Caspian summit is in Ashgabat, the city of love. It's about cooperation. And these comrades over there in the West, in that small part of the world, for some reason, they're all about war. 
They're always about war. And we're always about cooperation. This is where Russia's position is so vastly different. The Russian position is all about peace and security versus the West, which undermines the security and does everything to disrupt all global connections. That is the main difference. And now about love. There's no love in international relations. There are national interests and national values. So when someone swears everlasting love, especially if it's Erdogan or Western colleagues, we should immediately doubt it. There's no such thing as everlasting love. Now, can we all notice how absurdly large this table is for seven-ish people to sit at? I mean, we're t this thing is huge. Like, why, why are they sitting so far away from each other? And real quick, did he just try to say that all the countries involved in this meeting were peaceful and wanted to be cooperative? Does he not know that the Iranian government is literally sitting at this table? Just going to throw that one out there. And it also seems that NATO is going to be providing the Ukrainian military with a ton of new stuff. Biden has just announced that 50-plus countries are providing Ukraine with the following. This brought together more than 50 countries, more than 50 countries pledging new commitments. And this is a global effort to support Ukraine. Nearly 140,000 anti-tank systems. More than 600 tanks, nearly 500 artillery systems, more than 600,000 rounds of artillery ammunition, as well as advanced multiple launch rocket systems, anti-ship systems, and air defense systems. And again, the United States is leading the way. We provided Ukraine with nearly $7 billion in security assistance since I took office. The next few days, we intend to announce more than 800 million more, including new advanced Western air defense systems for Ukraine, more artillery and ammunition, counter battery radars, additional ammunition for the HIMARS multiple launch rocket systems we've already given Ukraine, and more HIMARS coming from other countries as well. We're going to throw those out there. France is also going to be transferring six more Caesars to Ukraine. These things are extremely valuable. They're very, very powerful, and it's a good thing to take note of. Now, this next piece is actually from a Russian military expert who is trying to explain why there is no time frame and no real idea as to how much land Russia needs to actually take within Ukraine to be, uh, for it to count as success. We must carry out a large amount of methodical, competent, and carefully considered work to denazify Ukraine. Why isn't Vladimir Putin naming any concrete territories or time frames because it's currently impossible to understand what those territories and time frames are. But I like this kind of figurative comparison of the fascistization of Ukraine with a cancerous tumor. We are now working like surgeons. And when a surgeon cuts out a cancerous tumor, while he is cutting it, it's growing. And when he cleans it up, he also has to clean up a certain amount of healthy tissue so that God forbid nothing remains and starts growing again. And the fascist infection is the same. That's to say, if some of its remains are somewhere, it will definitely start growing again. Therefore, we will purify that territory very precisely, very severely, and ensure that the fascist infection doesn't grow anywhere else. Now, they are once again trying to push the denazification piece, and the reason why they're having to adjust, as they say, the, the, this win for Russia is because they really have no idea how far they can actually make it. With this new announcement of this massive package coming in from the West to help the Ukrainian military, I would assume the Russians are a bit worried because it's going to be a bit more difficult to actually secure ground with how much new stuff is being filtered in. What was it, like 600 tanks are going to be given to them? 600? That's a ton. All right, we're going to move over to some mapping, talk about what's going on on the ground. And uh, that's pretty much that. I know a lot of you guys and gals out there do enjoy this piece. I enjoy doing it. It kind of gives you an understanding of what's going on.
So, quick overview. We got Harkiv. This is uh, what's pretty much going on in the country. A lot of you guys out there do enjoy this. Red is going to be the Russia-controlled areas. Now, you can see inside of this area, this is over the last two-ish weeks, three weeks or so, each one of these little blocks you see are areas that the Russians have taken over during a 24-hour to 48-hour period. Uh, hasn't been a lot going on in the southern region uh, until you get over near Kyrgyzstan, which it's kind of interesting. And I think, yes, see, there it is. This is what we're going to talk about here later on. This is 70.58 miles. Oh, I said 50 miles, by the way, earlier. I meant to say 80, uh, not 50 miles, just so you are aware, over a piece we're going to talk about here later on. So we're going to start up in the Kharkiv area. Not a ton going on when it comes to movements from either side. Once again, not much happened today. Uh, there was one push that the Russians did try to actually come a little bit more south. It was repelled. Other than that, there hasn't been much going on in Kharkiv. Now, pushing down into Izium, there's a little bit going on over here. Switch over to my other map. There we go. Now, Russia has been applying a bit more pressure in the town of, I'm going to get this right, I promise you, Borho. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm going to try, though. Bohor Deshine, which they've, they've actually taken control of half the town as of yesterday. Uh, this is the area I am talking about right here. They've added this much more ground. So there's the area I am currently talking about. This is just north of Slovenia for everybody who is listening on audio. The Ukrainian forces will still maintain control of the high ground on the southern side of the city. And I believe the only way for the Russians uh, to be successful in this area uh, is the fact they're going to have to take these hills. They're going to have to gain control of the MO3 route that is leading south into Slovenia. So they're going to have to come down this route and either peel up this main route. They're going to have to get south. They're still going to have to push more south, which they have been here recently. Or they're going to have to shell the hills relentlessly which will allow them to possibly push forward through the town and then up, up the hills, which is going to be very difficult. Because as we know, this area is extremely hilly, and these really dark green areas are solid forests. So there's that. So that's pretty much what's been going on. Most of the movement is going to be near Lizchansk, which is right here. We're now over there. So we've now shifted a bit east for everybody who is listening. We're in Lizchansk. The Russians have for sure taken Bilahora. Okay, and they've actually pushed the front lines just closer to Lizchansk itself. They've also taken control of the towns that are leading out of Lizchansk. But from what I'm gathering, it doesn't look like the Ukrainians have been using any of these routes to actually exfil from the city itself. So these main routes, the ones I'm talking about that are black, I believe. Okay, it looks like they have been excelling or excuse me, exfilling out of the northern portion of the city and been pushing towards the southwest, towards Bilorvika, and then on towards Seversk. So this is actually the route they're taking is looking somewhat more like this, I believe. We know that the Ukrainians have held off the Russians right here. They sustained, that is, the Russians sustained one of their largest casualties uh, to date was inside of Bilovica when they tried to cross over the Donetsk River. Did not pan out too well. Now, I, I'm not entirely sure when the next major line of defense has been set up by the Ukrainian military, but I do believe the Russians are ready uh, to try to make a push across the river yet. I, I'm not really... I'm not really sure they're ready for that. Uh, mainly, if they try to do this and start gathering in one area, they're going to become an easy target for the Ukrainian artillery units. And I don't believe they're willing to risk this kind of loss as of right now with the Ukrainian military currently pushing back through this area. And you got to think about it. If the Ukrainian military is putting out a, pushing out a list chance and then pushing down this main valley into Seversk, they've got a lot of men along this main route. Okay, a lot of men. Now, the town just north of Lyschansk is still heavily contested and still has Ukrainian forces in it. That's Privilo right here. Just north of Lizchansk, it has been uh, it's been said the Ukrainian forces have been noted to have heavily mined the road. So it's going to be extremely slow going for the Russians as they push through if they're able to actually get a river crossing successfully actually set up and done. 
The civilian evacuation out of the city itself of Lishansk has actually been impossible due to heavy shelling that's been occurring. The Russians have also mined all the access roads leading out of the city with anti-tank mines. So the whole area that they control is now completely mined. There is still heavy fighting taking place all along the main route that leads out of Bakhmut into Lishansk. The Russians have advanced a little bit on the southern side of outside of Klynov. They have taken over this area. Klynov, there's heavy fighting going on right now. And just south of here as well, the Russians are trying to push all the way through here as well. So you have a few different areas that are on the southeastern side of Bakhmut that are being heavily contested by the Ukrainians, or excuse me, the Russians that are trying to push through. Other than that, this eastern side of the country is going to be the main focus. Now, I'm going to shift over to Kirsten because I want to show you guys something I didn't really realize uh, until I started making the mapping. So we know that Snake Island itself was hit. Okay. Snake Island is just off of Odessa, like south of Odessa, like I think it's roughly 50-ish miles or so. I'm just realizing something, by the way, that the HIMARS has 80-mile capability, okay? That's, that's fairly far. Now, I have this, this, this line you guys can see right here, this thick blue line. This is actually only 70 and a half, this is 70 and a half miles across, and this is just outside of Odessa. And I wanted to put this here because I just now realized that I should have brought this up at the beginning that these high Mars were going to be coming to play in the southern Ukraine. Now, I didn't map it out because I wasn't really for sure where they could touch, but they can touch Nick Island, <clears throat> excuse me, when it comes down here in the Kyrgyzstan area. Uh, the Ukrainians are legitimately capable of actually touching Kyrgyzstan from just outside of Odessa, okay? So the Russians can't touch that, that high Mars unit like, at all. They don't have the capability to do so unless they hit it by air. I can't believe it. I'm just now realizing this, but I guess I didn't know they were down there. No one really did until Snake Island was hit. But now the entire Russian front outside of Kyrgyzstan has just became a target of HIMARS. Okay, we could possibly see a major shift inside of certain areas if they start actually utilizing them over the next few days, which I would assume they possibly will if they have the ammunition to do so. So I know in this next package, they're going to be getting a ton of stuff. So I would assume the Kyrgyzstan area, we're going to see a lot of movement over the next 24 hours, 48 hours to a week if they start utilizing the HIMARS, because HIMARS, like, look at this. It literally can hit every single area inside of Kyrgyzstan they want to. If they want to, if they want to target an ammunition depot, they want to target a staging area, they're able to do that from 80 miles away. Like, imagine that. Like, that would take you two hours to drive in a, state dis a straight distance. Like, that's, think how far that is. You just cruise along, all of a sudden a missile just comes in from 80 miles away. Yeah, expect Kirsten a little bit of movement. Other than that, that's pretty much what we got going on today. I do hope you guys go over and follow the other channel. I do love you guys. I'll be linked to the very top description and inside the comments. Other than that, I am out. Sorry for the short video. I uh, that's, that's pretty much that. I'm out, y'all.